If you will turn with me to Acts chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 1. Hold your place there. How many of you have ever had to take a child to the doctor for a shot? Or if you're in here and you're, you're one of the children, how many of you have ever had to go to the doctor for a shot? Okay. If you're the child getting the shot, you don't always understand that something that hurts so badly is actually good for you. Now, you know that as the parent because you have a, you have a bigger perspective on what's going on than the child does. And as you are the parent trying to make your child comply, um, you understand that this is good for them and in the long run it's going to be the best for them. Uh, but the child with the limited knowledge thinks that you're just the worst person in the world for making them go through that. Or if you've ever gotten that look like, how could you have done that to me? And then you walk away feeling guilty. Um, so what happens is we tend to fight things that we don't like, things that don't feel good, things that are not uh, pleasant for us. We tend to fight those even if they are good for us. And God is much like the parent in that, in that scenario. God understands he's got a bigger perspective. His perspective is the complete perspective of all of life. God understands what's best for us. Um, and oftentimes mankind will fight against him because he's saying, this is good for you. I know that this is the best thing for you. And mankind is saying, I don't like how this feels or I don't like how this um, whatever. It's not something that they want. And so they fight against him. And, and Paul, as he went from place to place, we're, we're talking about his first missionary journey. And in a minute, we're going to look at a map so I can just kind of give you a pers perspective on where he's at. But Everywhere Paul has gone so far, as we've gone through Acts, every single location that he went to, he has faced um, opposition because he was bringing a message that the people needed to hear, but the people didn't want to hear. He said in, uh, later on in Acts, we will eventually get there in chapter 20, but he says in chapter 20, verse 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so you have to ask, so why, why would he continue to do that? Why would he continue uh, going from place to place doing this when he knows that opposition and uh, persecution are awaiting him? Well, verse 24, the next verse, he says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. When you know something's true, you know and there's a, there's a deep urging inside you that you need to tell people. When you know something is true, you need to inform people of that truth. And sometimes they don't want to hear it. And sometimes they fight against you. The gospel really is a message that divides culture. So let's look at our text in Acts. If you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? And we're going to read verses 1 to 7. Acts 
So Paul has just left Pisidian Antioch where he was persecuted. He and Barnabas were persecuted and driven out. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, God, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to gather again. And um, as we are trying to be cautious because of uh, this virus, God, I just pray that you would uh, watch over us and keep us safe and healthy so that we can continue to gather together as your people um, because you've designed your church to be a community. Um, and so we're thankful for where we're at in this process. We pray that you continue to move us along in a safe manner. Lord, as we have gathered today and we're listening to what, what you have to say to us through your word, uh, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and give us wisdom and understanding to know not only what's happening here and what you're teaching, but how that applies to life as well. Thank you for the example of Paul and Barnabas who though persecuted everywhere they went, did not lose heart, but continued to push on to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I pray that we could be people like that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so our first point we're going to look at today is we're just going to talk a little bit about Paul's time in Iconium. We're going to talk a little bit about Iconium itself, the the city, uh, so that we get a little bit of background information on who he's talking to and what the culture is like there. Uh, The first thing I want to look at is a map of his first missionary journey. So um, I meant to buy one of those really fancy laser lights so I could look cool up here, but I'll just have to point. Um, They started off in Antioch, which is down this is a different Antioch than we talked about last week. So this is Israel. There's Jerusalem. They start off in Antioch where um, they were sent. That was their sending church. And they, we've, we covered how they came across to the island of Cyprus. And there, that's where the proconsul was converted. Um, and then they went up to the mainland there, uh, landed in Perga, and then traveled to Antioch, uh, another city that's now, this is Pisidian Antioch that we talked about last week. Uh, But you remember, like, he dealt with a guy who was mocking them and taunting them on the island of Cyprus. They got to Antioch, and they were driven out of the city by being persecuted. They moved on to Iconium, which is where we're at today, and they're going to face opposition there as well. So, so that just gives you an idea. This first missionary journey is going to go all the way down to Derby, and then he's going to make his way back to Antioch. Um, 
to complete that first missionary journey and give a report to the church in Antioch. Um, so that just gives you an idea of where he's at. Uh, Iconium is about 100 miles southeast. Can you go back to that just for a minute? It's about 100 miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch. So when they were persecuted and driven out of Antioch, they traveled 100 miles on foot. Now you can go back to the notes. Um, it's about 100 miles southeast of Antioch. So that's about the distance of Peoria to Quincy or Peoria to Aurora. Um, can you imagine walking that? We could never, we wouldn't make it. Um, but, you know, that's just part of the life back then. So they travel by foot 100 miles. They go, they go to Iconium. Iconium sits in a plateau. Um, can you go back to the map real fast? Between the Taurus Mountains, which are right here, and the, um, I think it's called the Sultan Mountains, uh, which are on the side here. And so it sits in the plateau that's down in the valley there, and it's a well-watered, rich place uh, for agriculture because the rivers run down those two mountain ranges down in and waters the the city of Iconium down there. So um, it was... It was at the time a Greek city, and it was a center of agriculture because of, uh, that's one of the reasons it was a center of agriculture, and then um, it was a center of commerce as well. So just like what is typical with Paul, he goes to major cities most of the time and tries to reach as many people as possible. If you go to major cities, you can, you can get a, a large crowd to listen to you, and if you uh, win some to the gospel. When he moves on to the next city, he establishes a church there, and then they work on spreading the gospel to their community. And so, um, and so that's Paul's kind of a, his typical practice. As we, as we look at our text today, there, we're going to look at how he interacts with the people. And there are th- actually three things I want to look at that Luke uses three words or phrases that Luke uses that I think are really interesting things to look into. So we're going to just do a really quick surface level word study on some of these things. The first thing, as Paul is interacting with them and Luke starts using uh, these words to describe what's going on there, Luke uses the word unbelieving in verse 2. So he, he starts off by saying there were a number of Jews and Greeks that believed. But verse 2, he says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. So the word unbelieving, the the actual Greek word that Luke uses here, if you literally translate it, it means disobey. There's a connection between unbelief and disobedience or vice versa. Um, There are two other uses that I looked up in the New Testament uh, John 3.36 and Hebrews 3.18, where this same word is used. And in both of those places, it is used to describe a disobedient person who uh, does not have salvation. So when Luke is describing these people who were stirring up the Gentiles, he describes them as people who are disobedient. They're, they're Jews who knew the law. Paul comes and presents to them how the law is fulfilled in Christ. And they choose to reject that and stand in opposition to God. And so Luke uses a word that literally means they were disobedient to God, a word that in other places in the New Testament is used to describe people who are not saved. The next thing that Luke says is that the 
the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. This word poisoned means to harm. The, the, the Greek word that he uses means to harm. Um, it's an intentional act on the parts of these people who were not believing, who were rejecting God, an intentional act to harm the listeners in their thinking. So it's very malicious in its um, intention. When, one, when someone poisons something or poisons someone, you do that to strike a fatal blow and to put an end to the opposition. Um, if you put out rat poison, your per- the, the purpose in doing that is to kill any rats that might be infesting the area and end that problem. And you can do the same thing by manipulating the human mind. It's not a physical death, but it, you can poison their, the minds of the people to bring about a an unbelief or a rejection of the gospel, and therefore it may not be a physical death, but it will bring about spiritual death. And I just think that that is a, that is a very descriptive way that Luke has chosen to describe what they were doing. It was not just opposing them. It was an intentional effort to not only oppose Paul and Barnabas and the message of the gospel, but to prevent other people from receiving that and accepting that and therefore it was an it was a harmful malicious intent intent to uh bring them down to destruction as well and then the third thing that luke uses is a little word that we translate so in verse three so verse two says but the unbelieving jews stirred up the gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the brothers verse three luke says so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord and God bore witness to that message by giving them signs and wonders to prove that their message was true. This word so indicates that that's the reason that they remain there. So it's almost as if because these guys were so intentionally trying to bring about uh, re- a division and get people to stand in opposition to Paul and Barnabas and the gospel message. It's almost as if Paul and Barnabas decided, you know what? We need to stick around because these guys are going to be feeding lies to the community. We need to stick around to be able to refute that and to speak into the community truth. Um, and God, as they do that, God gives them the ability to uh, perform miracles and signs and wonders to confirm that gospel message that Paul was preaching. God bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So while the Jews stirred up the crowd to oppose Paul, it's as if God continued to just pour out more and more confirmation of their message. The more the opposition arose, the more God poured out to confirm the gospel message. And so that's kind of a little bit of what's taken place in Iconium. They, they're facing opposition, and they've decided it's not yet to the point where they feel they need to flee and get out and head to the next town. So they're going to stick around as long as they can to get that message and that truth, that the gospel message that is so vital, the gospel message that is the only hope 
that people have to be saved, they stick around because they don't want to leave these people who are being poisoned in their minds to the mercy of the unbelieving or the disobedient Jews who've rejected the gospel message. So that's point number one. Our second point is we're going to talk about the gospel and how it divides. I told you at the beginning that Paul faced opposition everywhere he went uh, because the gospel is a very controversial, divisive topic. Now, you may be thinking, Kurt, you said two weeks ago that the gospel was our only hope to bring unity in our, in our world, right? Our culture. Anybody remember that? Is anybody thinking that? Is anybody thinking, hold on, if you were, then you just get extra points today. Um, what, I did talk about that two weeks ago, how we've got, we've got divisions in our nation, our culture's divided, and there's tension between races, there's tension about all kinds of other issues that, uh, that the culture's dealing with. And I did say that the only way, the only hope we have, and the only way that there will ever be reconciliation and healing will be by the gospel. But that isn't a guarantee that people are going to accept it. And you may remember that I actually said, if that, is, that message is rejected, we can still have hope because we have um, an eternity uh, in God's presence waiting for us. So it's not a guarantee that the people are going to accept it. Healing in our culture may not happen. But if it does happen, it will take the gospel. That's what I was communicating two weeks ago. But, so the gospel can unite and it can heal, but the gospel is also quite divisive. Nothing else in all of history has ever been so divisive as the gospel message. And the reason for that is because the gospel makes a truth claim about itself. It says, this is the only truth that there is. All other religions are false. All other things that you would put your hope in will disappoint because they will fail you. So when, when something or someone makes a claim that they have the only truth in all of life and reality, that tends to not sit well with some people. And so the gospel message and its truth claim divide. And it, that truth that it claims centers on a God-man named Jesus who, on top of the fact that it's saying this is the only truth, now it's saying this guy is the center of that truth and this guy will not allow mankind to, to remain in the darkness of their sin. So he brings confrontation to their life of sin. And so that even, even the name of Jesus is divisive. There is no other name that is so sweet in the mouths of some and so bitter in the mouths of others. There's no other name that brings peace to the hearts of some and brings fear to the heart of others. There's no name that is so unifying in the lives of some and so divisive in the lives of others. There's no other name that brings out love from some and also brings out hatred from others. There's no other name that represents the perfect balance of being all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, perfect in every way, and yet humble, a perfect picture of humility. 
And Acts 4.12, that we've already covered in our study, tells us that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So when you make a truth claim like that, that message instantly drives a sword down the middle. And why wouldn't the name of Jesus and the gospel message that he brought cause division? I mean, Jesus himself said in Luke 12, 51 to 53, he says, Do not think I've come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, sorry, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, no one, from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What Christ is saying there is, I'm coming with with the message of hope and truth. It is the only message that can bring hope because it's the only message that has truth. But that message is not going to bring peace on earth. It's going to bring a division. It's going to bring a sword that's going to cut down the middle of all of history and culture. And there are going to be people who stand with him. And there are going to be people who stand in opposition to him. Christ calls us to take a clear stance with him according to the truth of his word. And some people do not want to surrender their control of their life over to him. And so the gospel is a message that divides. So point number three, what's this mean for our church or for the church today? Well, there, is cert- there will certainly be division between the church. The, uh, I put big C, meaning global church. There will be a division between the church and culture. That's obvious. That's been there since the start of the church in Acts, and it will continue to the time that Jesus comes back and takes us to be with him. But that division is not restricted to only a difference between the church and the culture. Satan creeps into the church at times and tries to sow division within the church itself. So you see division even among Christians. You see division among denominations. You see divisions between, among um, individual congregations. Sometimes you see divisions among um, families. Satan tries to sow that division in the church, and it is so easy to begin to think like the world. It's so easy when you are being... The, Satan, spiritual warfare is real. And Satan does not tire. We get tired. We get worn out. He's not a physical being that can tire. And so he never gives up. He never lets up. Unless it's a strategy to come back at a different time and, and drive a nail in the coffin. The culture that is running after the things of the world is pressuring the church and if you have any interaction with the culture at all which you have to have it or else how would the gospel get out to the those who need it if you have any interaction with the culture as well 
there is going to be a strong pull to, to pull your thinking away from thinking biblically and thinking like the mind of God into thinking like the culture. It's really easy to get sucked into that. And it's really easy to get sucked into that when you have to face the hard truth of the gospel. It's not a, it's not a feel good to come to church and talk about these things and then I go and I live my life the way I want to. It's not a, I like the idea of some of the things that Jesus is teaching so I will pick and choose the things that I want to live. It's I'm all in or I'm not at all. I'm all in or I'm all out. And that hard truth is sometimes the, the very thing that makes some believers begin to uh, drift in their thinking to think more like the culture. And you know that it is your thinking that drives your actions, right? You, you act according to what you think and believe. Let me give a couple of examples. One is from history that the church had to face. And one is from a more modern time that we are still dealing with the effects today. The first one is um, from the first century church. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know if I've got this or not up here. Um, I don't think I do. The first one is from the first century church. The first century church, especially the churches that were part of the Roman Empire, those churches had... Um, had a situation pushed upon them that they had to make a decision. Am I going to stand with God? Am I going to stand on the side of the gospel? Or am I going to compromise and stand in a place that's more comfortable that maybe will save my life? The emperor, the Roman emperor, got in his mind that he really thought it'd be a great thing if everybody worshipped him as a god. And so it became law that you had to, like, you could worship any other gods you wanted to, but you had to offer worship to the emperor. So they didn't care if you wanted to worship another god or a hundred other gods, as long as you worship the emperor as god as well. It was called emperor worship. And the church was faced with a a decision. What are we going to do? Because if we don't do, if we don't worship the emperor, then they could put us to death. We will be punished and it could, it could, the punishment could be death. But if we worship the emperor, then we have compromised our belief and our commitment we made to Christ when we said that Christ is the only uh, Lord that we serve who is worthy of worship. And some of the Christians at the time compromised. They sacrificed their witness to the culture to save their own life. And it caused a big issue in the church. Um... It caused division in relationships. It caused problems with how do you move forward if somebody, um, if somebody has decided that they made a mistake and how, you know, all kinds of stuff that the church then had to deal with that was messy. But it's because the gospel calls us to make a stance with Christ. And the culture is going to push you to a point where you have to decide, I'm with Christ or I'm not. Uh, a situation that's more at home for us. And I'm not, I'm not getting into a political issue. I'm getting into a biblical issue that has been turned into a political issue. In the early 1970s, the big divisive hot-button topic 
was abortion. Many in the culture were um, gathering rallies and they were, um, you know, petitioning their legislators and they were putting pressure on their legislators and they were making their voice very known that they thought abortion should be okay, should be legal for people to do. And God had given the church at the time a perfect opportunity to do what the church is supposed to do. The church is supposed to be a change agent in culture. It's supposed to be a, a, an agent in the culture that keeps, that, ha- that God uses to keep um, evil in check. And the church had an opportunity. So as the one side was making their voice very known, the, cho- the church, as the voice of truth, you know what they did? You know what they said? Not really anything. The church was pretty silent through the, most of that. And so then you ask the question, so did that silent compromise to not speak up and to not say that this is not right, to not say that this is against what we see in Scripture, to not say God is the author of life and he is the one who decides when life starts and when life ends? Did that decision to be silent silent during that time bring about any kind of a calm and peaceful end to this pressure and, and the and the emotional and political uh, unrest that was going on, did it bring that about? Well, I think it's evident today, some of you were alive at the time, some of us were not at the time, but you can see today that that is continuing. That's still an issue that we deal with. That's still a hot-button topic that divides the culture. It doesn't just divide culture, it divides some inside the church as well. So, when, when you are faced with the gospel and you're faced with the culture, Christ calls you to make a choice to stand with him. And like Paul, it's not always going to be a pleasant uh, outcome for those who stand with Christ. Truth is sometimes hard to handle, even for me. There are things in Scripture, I adhere to Scripture, I think it's God's Word, you know, front to back. Um, I think it's the authority that runs, it's the authority that I've submitted my life to, to to allow it to govern my life. Uh, But there are things in Scripture that are hard for me to read through and, and process and and hard for me to feel comfortable with. But if it is truth, if this is the only truth that there is, if we believe that, and I do, if we believe that this is the only truth, then we have to choose which side we're going to stand on. Are we going to stand on the side of the gospel, on the side with Christ, with the God who has proven throughout all of this history and all of history afterward that he never fails his people? Or are we going to stand in opposition to him? Are we going to choose what's more comfortable for us? Are we going to choose what might be a more comfortable life for us, for our children? Are we going to choose 
what might per, might save our li- our physical life someday if there's ever persecution like Paul faced in the early church faced in the Roman Empire. We're going to choose to stand with Christ and maybe have to lay it on our life, or are we going to choose to stand in opposition to him and we might save our earthly, physical life, but we will but our eternal life will be taken away if we stand in opposition to God's only fix for our sin problem. So the gospel is very divisive. Um, It brings about a forced decision on our part where we stand. Let me give you a scenario to wrap up here. If if you were uh, in a building on the 12th floor and there was a fire that broke out, not just a little wastebasket fire, which I know that can become greater, but I mean a, a major fire that has broken out on the 12th floor and everybody needs to get out of the building. On your way down, if you find people on the third floor who didn't know anything was going on, so you see them, they're in their office, they're working, they're just going about their normal day like nothing's going on. Um, if you see them, would you not stop and tell them, hey, there's a fire, I'm from the 12th floor, there's a fire, you've got to get out of the building. That's what most people would do. Now suppose that they didn't believe you because they had seen no evidence of a fire. They'd heard nothing about a fire until now. And you'd interrupted a pretty important meeting that they were having and they were irritated and so they just told you to get out and leave them alone. In that situation, would you leave, just leave them to, to, because of their ignorance, be engulfed by the flames? Or would you not urge them and insist that they come and continue to urge them and continue to try to get them to believe you and come after you until you, the very last possible moment before you had to get out yourself. That is the situation that the church is in today. The world is in a building that is on fire and it's going to eventually spread and engulf the whole thing. And we are trying to get the message of the gospel, the only hope that we have for being saved after life on this earth comes to an end. We're trying to get that message to as many people as possible. But you know what? Some people are not going to accept that truth. They're not going to listen to that message. They're going to actually, as they did in Iconium and in Pisidian Antioch, they're going to get, some are going to get irritated with you as you try to share the gospel, and they're going to drive you out. Like the Iconians, they will live and they will die in their unbelief their, or their disobedience or their rejection of God's son, Jesus. So your call, your commission that God has given you is to take his message of salvation to the world but some are going to reject it because it is a divisive issue. It's a truth claim that people don't want to hear and people don't want to surrender their own control over their life, over to someone else like Jesus.
it brings division to the world. But heed the words of Jesus when he stood before Pilate. John 18, verse 37, he said to Pilate, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. We want to be people who, no matter what persecution might lie ahead, mocking, which we can handle, um, some kind of passive-aggressive way of oppressing us, physical assault or beatings, or maybe even death. Whatever the persecution that awaits us, we have the hope of eternal life after this earth, after this time on this earth. And so stand with Jesus who says, I came into the world to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that um, your word is truth and that it's the only thing in all of this life where everything is changing all the time. Technology is changing all the time. Cultural thought is changing all the time. Um, Sickness is advancing at a great rate. Medicine is also advancing at a great rate. Everything, we're constantly learning new things that we thought were one way and now we're realizing we were wrong. Our life is always changing. And it can make us feel out of control. Your word is the only thing that not only doesn't change in this world, but it's the only thing that will, that will last for all of eternity um, untouched. It's the only thing that will remain. And so we've been given an opportunity by you to stand according to this truth, to allow this truth to govern our lives and to change our lives, to believe in Jesus, which means not just to know that he was real, but to be changed by him, allow him to be in control. And then we, Lord, are guaranteed by you that promise that we can be with you for all of eternity um, in heaven, where none of this evil stuff that we deal with will ever be allowed to touch us. But we've got to be people who stand with your truth, and it's hard on this, on this earth. Give us faith to say no matter what, this is what governs my life. Christ is the Lord of my life. I will not compromise, but I will stand with him. In Jesus' name, amen.